Hello, this is Paul Bainsfair at the IPA. And today uh, we're talking about post-truth. More specifically, uh, whether or not the age of post-truth has affected our industry and what we should be doing about it. And uh, the interview that you're about to hear is with Matthew Dancona, who has written a fascinating book on post-truth called, not surprisingly, Post-Truth. Um, and Matthew and I talked about this very topic after he had addressed our advanced strategic planning course here at Belgrave Square, Strategy in the Age of Post-Truth. So um, without further ado, let's listen to what Matthew had to say. I hope you enjoy it. So Matthew, um, just given a really interesting talk to uh, a number of account planners who are in the IPA today, uh, and I saw them hanging on your every word, uh, now's a chance for me to ask you some questions um, to a wider audience uh, about post-truth. You've, you've, just, you've just written a book and, and it's been published about this very topic. What, what was it that drew you to this, I mean, other than the fact that everyone was talking about it? Well, it was, um, it, was, it was a subject that had been discussed a bit in 2016 and o Oxford Dictionary has actually made post-truth their word of the year. Uh, and I guess the... The initial trigger was the Brexit referendum and Donald Trump's victory, which were both uh, taken as examples of post-truth where emotions uh, trump or eclipse facts. And so um, because I'm, I spend most of my time writing political columns, um, there seemed some merit in, in, in writing a, a short snappy book about this and trying to look uh, beyond the political world into other areas of of, of thought and ideas and seeing whether this was something that was more general and indeed it is and I think it's one of the most important gateways into understanding where the world is right now so I'm, I'm very glad I wrote the book I've, I've learnt a lot since I wrote it and I enjoy um, as I have today talking to audiences who have fascinating insights into this new context. Did you say you had found yourself in Wormwood Scrubs talking about it recently? Yes, I was. Um, there's a wonderful group that organises um, readings and book clubs in in prisons, and I went to it was the first time I'd done this. I went to Wormwood Scrubs, and a group of about twenty inmates gathered, and some of them had actually read the book. And what was interesting was how engaged they were with the problem with the uh, concept of fake news and conspiracy theories and um, it showed the, the penetration of this because they don't have access to digital media and limited access to other media and yet uh, they would got a pretty um, a literate concept of what was going on and they were very concerned for their children, grandchildren, what this meant and what it meant for them when they get out. And I just thought that was a, a, a sort of very interesting micro example of how how big this problem is and how how much it it has come to concern people. Mm. So uh, just before we go any further, how how do you define post truth? I know it was in the Oxford English Dictionary. You, you mentioned that. What, what, what's your I, definition? I think the best definition is to say it's it, it's a context in which emotions kind of crowd out facts, um, and it's not lying which is as old as human communication and possibly older, uh, it's, it's the way that lies are um, consumed and are, are collusion in them almost. Our, our decision 
um, not to insist upon facts, but to take our decisions in, uh, in a different way on the basis of emotional resonance. And I think Trump was the classic example of that because um, he was a candidate who had no history of public service, who had huge and, and well-established flaws as a candidate. And yet he seems to have achieved a resonance, in, particularly in the attribution of blame and anger, um, with the voters of America. And, this, and that was a game-changing election because it demonstrated a broader truth that people were, were more interested in emotional resonance and, if you like, the, 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 the deep story of what he was saying than they were perhaps in, in his uh, traditional qualifications as a presidential candidate. Yes, I mean, some people have said it's, it's not just about Trump, it's about the circumstances that led to people wanting to elect a guy like that. Yes, I think Trump is actually a beneficiary of the post-truth world rather than its founder. And I think it's very easy um, to get too hung up on him. Uh, he's obviously the kind of personification of the era, but it's a mistake and one I try to avoid uh, to confine one's discussion of post-truth to him because really what matters is what comes after Trump in the in, in the political world, but also the the context which created him is, is, is visible in so many other areas, in, in um, the proliferation of conspiracy theories, um, in the uh, really alarming spread of pseudoscience, um, in the uh, spread of very, very nasty ideas like Holocaust denial, which seem to have been stamped out or at least driven to the very margins of speech and are now uh, coming back in a very big way because um, they, they have a kind of new vector in, in, in digital technology. And I think that's, that's, that's in at least as important, if not more important, than focusing on the political side. Yeah, I mean, we, we shouldn't dwell on Trump, but I, I want to say something about his tweeting, mm. um, which I, I still find just extraordinary. Um, and I was... Um, I was at the Marketing Society conference only the other day, and um, Mark Thompson, who now uh, is the chief exec of the New York Times, ex-BBC, of course, was talking about the anti-New York Times tweets, mm. when I think he said something like, the New York Times is the enemy of the American people. Amazing uh, language. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And that's really a, a whole sort of demonstration with that space of, of, of what we're talking about, isn't it? Well, I think what it illustrates, um, apart from Trump's own extraordinary psychology, is something more important, which is that we used to live in a world that was uh, structured around institutions, and a president would never uh, have had unmediated access 24-7 to the public, as, as he now does. Um, Everything, every, every line would have been tested with focus groups, everything would have been checked by spin doctors, it would have been released through the formal channels, it might have been pre-briefed uh, to traditional media organisations and so on and so on. Social media and Trump's quite early understanding of the power of, of social media, specifically Twitter, has meant that He's an early riser, apparently, and he, so the first thing he does in the morning is, is tweets angrily about what he's watching on cable news. So um, you have the, this extraordinary situation where the, the, the beltway, the, the Washington machine of um, government, the most powerful nation on earth, wakes up 
to find um, that there are a series of tweets from the Commander-in-Chief about what was on Saturday Night Live or why he's angry with Meryl Streep or why he's angry about what this senator has done or this NFL player has done. And it's a completely new way of, of disseminating ideas, decisions, thoughts. Um, and, and I think it, what it, it illustrates is that a world of institutions is giving way to a world of networks. And what Trump and what's called the alt-right understood was that networks are more powerful. And actually, you can uh, weaponize uh, ideas and information in a way you couldn't before. The, the Trump campaign was by no means one of the most expensive in recent years. But what it did was it used the new technology at its disposal with tremendous um, uh, adroitness. Yes, and having said I, I recoil when I see these tweets, I can, I can actually sort of understand people's need for less discipline and more talking from the heart from politicians. Um, I mean, I go back to the, the, you know, the Blair and Campbell era we had here and subsequently, you know, I think it was pretty much the same with Cameron and Osborne. Everything, everything seemed so carefully worded. Sometimes, you know, they weren't saying anything and, you, you know, one gets a little bit fed up with that. So yeah. you can sort of understand the appeal. It's just the, it's just the extent and the drama of some of the things that he says. Well, Again, it comes back to the, the, the format, which was that the era of spin was a, uh, I suppose, a response to the, the understanding of political parties that mass media was now running the show. And that in order to get their message out, they had to enforce message discipline. And we're talking really here about the, the early 90s that, that it became as, as, as big an issue as it, as it then went on to become. Um, that was a response to a very, uh, what now looks like a very antiquated media environment. Um, since then, I think that informality has become more important to people. I think that, as you say, uh, th there was a kind of moment, probably uh, the Iraq dossiers was the kind of tipping point, where people felt that they were being sold a pup through this, this kind of spin. And there has undoubtedly been a reaction against it, which has been grafted onto the massive uh, revulsion and recoil against elites around the world that happened after the crash. So if you take on the one hand the sense we are being lied to, we're being spun to, um, and the idea that the, the, the so-called liberal elites around the world had, had led us into perdition, it's easy to see why someone who was speaking in uh, demotic ordinary language on Twitter might have appeal as a leader. Uh, I mean, Trump is not, Trump may lie, but he doesn't spin. It's an odd, a very mm. odd thing about him, but he, he, he's not a spin doctor <clears throat> at all. No, I mean, now, can we... We said we wouldn't only talk about Trump, so can we move on to something which is very close to our industry, which is uh, the ability in the new technological age we live in to target very carefully. And, and I'm really also thinking about, you know, bubbles and echo chambers and, and getting messages through to people in a discreet way that you know is, is going to appeal to them and, and maybe a different message to someone else. Can you talk a little bit about, about echo chambers and, and, well, um, and so-called bubbles? 
one, one of the things that I think is only becoming truly apparent now is that the algorithms, very secret algorithms that run um, the platforms that we all use online, are designed to send content to us that we like. Um, this is not a design flaw, it's, it's what they're meant to do. And actually, that's a, a good thing on one level. Uh, I mean, to take a very, very obvious example, um, if, like me, you're a, you know, a, a user of Amazon and you like particular kinds of books, I, I like the recommendations and I sometimes buy them um, because they, are, they tend to recommend things that are in the, the, the fields of the, that I'm interested in. And I don't resent that at all. Um, it's transparent, it's clear what they're doing. Um, and I also think that there's nothing inherently improper in um, using data that's been mined from social media to target adverts at, at people. What I think will become a problem is if, is if uh, users of social media become um, uneasy about the way in which they're being targeted and feel that somehow things that they thought, information they thought was private is being sold off uh, without their knowledge and they believe without their permission, although almost certainly they have in fact signed up to it on the terms and conditions when they join the platform. I think then there is, there is a danger to brands that, that their, um, their advertising, their messages become intrusive. And so this is, a, this is a, uh, an ethical and a commercial challenge, which is how do you make use of this undoubtedly amazing opportunity um, where everyone could be a winner because you know, if, you're, if you're interested in a certain kind of product and if you're likely to want to buy a certain kind of thing, then it, it's, it's not a, a, an inherently bad thing that the right sort of advertising should reach you. And why not? All to the good. Um, but equally, there has to be, I think, more care about the way in which this is done. It's a kind of um, a, a turbocharged version of the rejection of junk mail you know you sign you sign up to a charity and suddenly you find that you've got 36 charities sending you requests for um for donations it's um it has the it's counterproductive imagine that on a kind of um weaponized basis and it's very uh, it's very important for brands i think not to not to fall foul of that problem but th this is just one of the many new there's a kind of shopping list i think of problems posed by the new technology that the industry has, you know, should treat as an opportunity and a challenge. And as long as it keeps its head, it can all be worked out. But uh, what it can't do is is ignore the, the scale of the change. <clears throat> yes, and one of the we talked a little bit earlier about the um, decline in trust institutions. <clears throat> one of the disturbing things for the advertising industry is we track. How, how favourable advertising is seen by people generally. It's going down and down and down, more so than some of those other institutions you talked about. And I think a lot of this is to do with something you touched on there, which is we haven't really yet mastered uh, this new technology. So, you know, the famous retargeting ads that follow you around, you know, if you've, if you've you, you know, you look to, maybe you needed to buy a new bed or something, for quite a few weeks after you've bought the bed, you're getting ads from bed companies telling you to buy the bed. I mean, it really is quite annoying and, and quite persecuting sometimes. You just feel this thing is, is following you around. And I think that's contributed to this bad reputation that advertising's 
garnering uh, as a result of all that. Um, but it, it's easy to get quite depressed about everything that we're talking about. Um, you did, in the talk you gave earlier, talk a little bit about reasons to be positive or optimistic. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about that uh, before yeah. we go any further. Well, I think, I think that uh, the first thing is to say is that the, the, the decline in trust in advertising, I suspect, is largely um, a corollary of trust declining in everything. Um, and I wouldn't myself have thought that advertising was particularly culpable. Um, I, I think it's simply that trust generally is, is, is taking a downward turn. And so, as with all industries, there has to be a response. Well, what, what should that response be? I think that the, 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 the first uh, and most important uh, point is to recognise there is a problem and to uh, ask what the way forward is. What's not going to happen is a pendulum swing back to the old, the old days, whatever you think they may be. Um, this, this digitalized environment is going to become more and more and more powerful. And so the question is, how do we, how do we tailor our messages in that context? And actually, I think the advertising industry is, is in quite a good position because it's been thinking about the relationship between emotion and fact for a lot longer than other sectors. Um, and actually, if you accept that emotional resonance has crowded out fact, um, and that's not to the good, if you take that as your premise and then work on the basis that you want truthful messages to get across, but you have to do so with an emotionalism that communicates that you need to tell a story but not a fiction, I think that's a good starting place. And I also think that, um, to pick up your point about uh, um, how, how sometimes you can feel sort of stalked by brands, I think that offering people humility and a way out is extremely appealing. I always like it when, uh, if, I, if I have a, 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 a digest of news or something that I've, I've signed up to, prominently advertised on the email is the right to sign off it. You know, to, I think that's very, to unsubscribe. I very rarely take advantage of it when it's offered because I feel that having the exit route, the exit door open, mm gives me the freedom to know that I'm not trapped, so to speak. Yes, um, and, and I think that that kind of thing, small things like that, can make a huge difference. Um, that when um, the, the pursuit of a customer becomes oppressive, it obviously becomes counterproductive. The key in all of this must be the sense of the consumer that their lived human experience and their, their privacy and their rights are being respected. I think respect is very important. And I think treating consumers as adults is very important. I think brands that treat their their um, their consumers as uh, pe- as people who are calling them to maturity rather than declaring them inadequate will prosper in this environment. I think that one of the the great uh, defects of the current situation is a kind of infantilization, and people will get fed up with that. So brands that treat their customers as grown-ups will, will do well, I think. Yes, it's, it's interesting. There is, um, you, you were kind enough to mention that advertising agencies have understood uh, 
the importance of emotion as well as uh, rationality in, in selling brands. Uh, but there's a strange paradox that's happening with, with all of this technology and data. Uh, it's possible for advertisers and their agencies to be very precise, as I mentioned earlier, in the targeting. And that leads to slightly more humdrum, rational-based advertising, almost short-term style advertising. And there is a trend, almost, you can detect it, away from some of the big brand ideas that you know you, you and I will remember from when we were younger, that it was quite normal. You would, you would be able to talk about half a dozen campaigns that were running on TV. It's quite hard now, because everybody's splintering and fragmenting their messages to individual targets. Um, so I think it, it's important we remember what you've just said there, you know, and we, and we continue to, to stick to the knitting a bit on what we've learned over time, because there are fundamental things that don't change in this. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any, if there's any intrinsic inconsistency between micro-targeted advertising and advertising that has emotional content. Um, I mean, after all, you know, what do we feel most strongly about? We feel most strongly about that which is near to us. So if you're targeting people on the basis of the things they really care about, it's all the more important to give them emotional resonance, um, to, to uh, communicate to them that you actually care about their, their values, their family's values. Because, you're because by micro-targeting, you are moving into the terrain that is most sacrosanct to them. Uh, so all the more important to, to, to do that with, with respect and ingenuity and um, impact. Mm. But at the same time, total avoidance of creepiness. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's this is the very interesting uh, element in all of this is is that I think people are only just realizing quite how much of their of themselves that they yield um, to people they don't know when they go online. There was a very uh, well publicized case recently of. Um, of a woman who used freedom of information um, uh, rules to get access to her Tinder file. And it was 800 pages long. Um, and it showed incredible amounts of detail about her as a person. It wasn't all about uh, romantic things. It was about you know, what she liked, what she enjoyed, where she went on holiday, uh, all, all really geared to trading this information um, for commercial uses. And it was a very striking example of this slow recognition, I think, that, that we're not actually being given all this capacity for free. Um, Twitter and Facebook and, and so on um, are not as, as fantastically successful financially by accident. Um, we hand over the most valuable commodity in the world, which is information. And we do so uh, willingly, but perhaps not knowingly, if that doesn't... Mm. Is that sort of nonsensical? I think people aren't quite conscious yet of how much they are handing over, and this is bound to be a controversy in the next decade. I think, um, as people feel, why do they know that I'm um, you know, a Muslim or a Christian or Jewish or I live in this area or you know how how have they worked that one out? Mm. Um, it you know it, it, it's still I still find it. Funny the way that slightly clunky uh, adverts appear in my uh, around my social um, media feeds, you know, saying um, 
laser eye surgery now available in Lush, <laughs> as if it's specially available in Lush. It's <laughs> particularly brilliant. Um, but in that that's that's a that's an that's an incredibly primitive example of it. I mean, the 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 the, the extent to which we will now get bespoke advertising is is going to be amazing. I think. Well, look, this this um, you're touching on something now, which I wanted to sort of almost end on, which is the um, the power of the big four, the big four, um, really thinking about Amazon, um, Apple, Facebook, Google. Uh, they're, they're, they're not exactly bystanders in this age of post-truth. In, in many ways, they've facilitated it. No, not at all. Um, what, where's all that going? Do you think their love affair, or rather the politicians' love affair with them, which is how it seems from the outside, is, is going to break down? What, 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 what do you see happening there? I think it's important to remember how um, news all is. Uh, these brands have only been around re- for a relatively short while, in the case of Facebook, only since 2004. Um, so we, the, 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 the first surge of excitement about them um, is only now beginning to fade. Uh, part of the excitement of that was simply that people were blown away, politicians included, by the power of what they could do. And I remember you know, attending Google's Zeitgeist meetings that were addressed by prime ministers. And um, there was a sense that this technology was going to make the world a better place. But there was a very utopian first, first flush in, in what was called Web 2.0. And I think that hasn't faded entirely. But I think now there's, there's, there's a, a realization, as with all technological revolutions, that there are problems, pathologies, as well as uh, advantages. Um, and it's, it's no accident if you look across the world that governments are starting to take, they're starting to circle over the tech giants and ask some pretty penetrating questions about why it is that they claim to be platforms and not publishers in particular, and what responsibility they have when, for example, they proliferate fake news. Uh, the position of, of the tech giants hitherto has been, we will do our best to, um, uh, to, to flag up in data that, that is controversial, but we don't have the means to, to police it. Um, I think there'll have to be a grand settlement on this um, if there isn't to be a very nasty confrontation between governments under growing pressure from their publics and tech giants who simply refuse to be accountable at all. They'll have to, there may have to be a third category invented uh, to save face between, in addition to what we understand by a platform, what we understand by a publisher, and what these, uh, these giants do. But we do need them to be more accountable than they presently are. There's absolutely no question of that. We also need them to be, uh, without ruining commercial confidentiality, to give us a, a, a much clearer steer in the public space on what their algorithms can do. I mean, the one way to to get a, um, a yoga practicing, Swiss ball sitting uh, tech giant executive to turn nasty is to ask him or her about their algorithms. They mm. become very fierce then. I mean, the, you don't get near their algorithms. Um, and of course, the reason for that is because the algorithm is where the money is, is contained. It's the it's the golden goose. So um, we we may not get the the actual algorithm itself, but we do need to be able to ask as citizens what the algorithms are capable of doing. 
and I think that uh, that will happen in some shape or form. I suspect this is going to be a very disaggregated, rather bitsy and um, back and forth argument. Uh, Damien Collins uh, is uh, MP, Tory MP, who's chair of the uh, Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, is running an inquiry on fake news, which is, I think, going to produce a quite substantial report on not just fake news, but on what the future for tech giants should be. Um, and I suspect it's going to include some recommendations on licensing and the regulatory framework. Now, to take this country, we, we don't at present have a government with the authority to legislate for something like that. But I think the Collins report, when it comes out, will be a first draft of some use for future legislators and regulators. It's going to be a long haul, but there has to be some form of settlement. If I was in the tech giants, I would <coughs> excuse me, preempt this by actually sitting around the table and coming to an agreement for its for, enforced mm. upon them in the worst possible setting. But whether they have got beyond the hubristic phase that, that all technological pioneers have is an open question. It's a very... Well, we know Damien Collins. He's an ex-advertising man, actually. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm very pleased to see him leading the charge there. Um, but, you know, I think there is um, a, a recognition here in the UK amongst the chief executives or the executive suite, if you will, of these big companies that they need to... They need to get round the table. But there's another dynamic, which is the Californian Silicon Valley one, where they're still preaching this, you know, where we're not censors, we're, we're, we're liberal, we're, we're just offering the platform kind of spiel. And I think there's a, you know, joining those dots up is, is not as easy as it, as it might seem. Yes, there's a very interesting uh, character, Peter Thiel, who was briefly um, on the Trump transition team, hedge funder and and uh, tech uh, billionaire who has written extensively about the new world of technology and he said fascinatingly that there is a there is a there is a going to be a massive conflict um, between liberty and democracy and I think his feeling is that if, if there has to be a winner it should be liberty mm. um, well I commend him on his candor at least because <laughs> because at least he's being honest um, Yes, I, I mean, there is definitely a culture in Silicon Valley which says that commercial liberty in, in, in the case of tech has created so much wealth and so much uh, advantage and so much competence that it's, it's actually a, a bit of an affront for these dusty, grey old democratic governments to sort of waddle into the argument and say, you know, we'd quite like a bit of accountability. Um, well, um, we'll see. I mean, I, I still think that as, as, as jaded as people are about the political process and as dilapidated as many governments around the world are, we haven't quite reached the point yet of a kind of science fiction dystopian movie where great corporations run the world. We're not there yet. And I think the tech giants need to be a bit careful because um, we live in a populist era and it's quite possible that I, I mean, I can foresee populist leaders emerging who start to, uh, if you like, harness the growing concern about this and actually end up creating um, 
institutions and regulatory frameworks that are that are not really to anyone's advantage. I mean, the, the one thing I've always believed in since I've been involved in this debate is that the worst possible outcome of all the possible outcomes is a ministry of truth. Mm-hmm. The absolute, the, 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 thing, the <laughs> thing we mustn't have at the end of the day is a Secretary of State for truth or an off-truth regulator. Mm. That's not the answer at all. Mm. Regulation, fine. Accountability, absolutely. But the last thing we want is, is, is to have... Um, you know, a, a, a junior cabinet minister whose job, or a senior cabinet minister whose job it is to sort of decide what's what's true and what's not. And a, a variant on that is this idea that that parliamentarians who lie should be sent to prison, um, which had an idea that's had a certain amount of traction recently. Uh, they should be disciplined, um, of course, if they libel or they, they say something defamatory, then they should be um, subject to the full force of the law. But but there's there's been a separate call for, for, for politicians um, actually just to be treated as criminals for, for telling porcupines. And I think that's, that's an overreaction. And um, I, I am concerned at the, the eating away of free expression. We don't want, I think, in the commercial, the academic, the political space, we don't want to uh, end up where we are cosseting people, mm-hmm. where we are creating... Uh, digital safe spaces and um, imagining that, that everyone is, is, is terribly vulnerable and, and not able to make decisions. Again, I, I, I keep going back to this idea of, of adulthood. I think that the, the, the core of, of, of the fight back against post-truth must be to make, in a way, demands of people that they act as responsible citizens, that they, they are discerning in their use of digital information. And I think that if, if, if people are encouraged to act like that, then there's the, the, the future may be bright. Well, there, we should end it. Um, it. I could go on talking to you about this for um, a great deal of time. Uh, so thanks for giving up your time, Pleasure. Matthew. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And good luck with uh, the book and everything else. Thank you very much indeed. Well, there you have it. Matthew's take on the world of post-truth. Um, I found it fascinating. Um, I meant to ask him about the role of virtual reality TV programming, which of course is not really truthful and isn't really reality. Uh, I never quite got around to that, but never mind. Um, So once more, thank you for listening. This has been Paul Bainsfair, and this has been the IPA Podcast.